we've got the sober citizens together. Uh, all of us look sober, and all of us look like senior citizens. So, uh, I'm Gene Seal. I am an alcoholic and a former abuser of a number of other drugs. Hi, everybody. It's good to be here, and, uh, you know, I guess since this is a, an AA meeting of this special group, we'll open the meeting with a moment of silence for meditation or prayer as you wish. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for a membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It neither endorses nor opposes any causes, does not wish to engage in any controversy. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Um, I don't know what the protocol is here. I guess an AA meeting. I guess we just kind of share. Uh, I'll do my little thing. I notice I've got a couple of co-chairmen for this meeting, Bill Daniel and, and Harry Simpson, and well, uh, you know, they wouldn't tell me what to do. And, you know, when I've talked before, I noticed Bland just walked in, and, and uh, you know, in the past I've talked about my romancing, and uh, so with this group, I guess we could uh, uh, kind of skip that part of it, release the, uh, maybe that's the part we should talk about since we... Don't, uh, well, I better stay out of that, stay off of that subject. But I am never really, I've always wanted to be a nice person. And I still feel guilty because I haven't been able to make it, you know. (laughs) I guess that's the reason God's let me live as long to try to to practice some more. But uh, I certainly feel that I've, or at least uh, the police think I'm doing a lot better job than I used to. Uh, I haven't been in jail now in over 27 years, and uh, that's really something for me. And I've still got a few traffic tickets once in a while, and I've been thinking about trying to drive speed limit. But uh, I really, there was no drinking in the home I was raised in, and uh, I didn't know it. But I've figured out through the years as I've worked in in, uh, substance abuse and become a little more acquainted, uh, become a little more convinced that this thing is a familial illness. There are some uh, constitutional factors that are genetically transmitted. I've been taking histories a long time and, of course, been convinced of this a long time, but the evidence seems to continue to mount up that uh, that's true. My father apparently tried it when he was a teenager. Uh, he had left home in southern Arkansas, was in logging camp in Cloudcroft, New Mexico, got homesick, told the other guys about it, and they said, oh, just go up to the saloon, get a pint and drink it. That'll cure homesickness. And he returned and fell in the beans that 
the chow hall and went outside and passed out on the edge of the mountain stream and woke up almost froze and uh, that he was wasn't quite so slow bright as I have been but he didn't drink anymore on his deathbed he had Parkinsonism and the medicine wasn't working too well the neighbors taught my mother and the notion of giving him uh, some a jigger of whiskey and my older brother was there at the time and said that you know he had never been aggressive to my mother but uh, after she gave him that jigger of whiskey he couldn't get out of bed but every time she'd get close to the bed he'd grit his teeth and hit at her and apparently I became I took took after him because when I drank I became aggressive and uh, pretty complete character change and of course it was not that's that's I guess as far as I know that's the only time he ever drank but Alcohol just doesn't mix with a sea of blood. We just don't do well with it, but I tried harder. I kept at it for 23 years, kept trying to learn how. In fact, the business, there could have been something wrong with me, actually, before I started drinking, because the doctor that I started working for when I started in pre-med uh, told me one time, I was, I've always had a tendency to female trouble, and I was kind of sweet on the little co-ed and he said uh, you can't even support yourself you'll never make a doctor's uh, go get drunk and forget about her and I did half of that or at least uh, I went to my brother's place and he had a little booze and we went out and eat and drank very little but I got awfully high and then the next morning I was kind of down depressed and uh, but I like so many uh, tried it again and next time since my body was allergic to the stuff or at least uh, poison to me my body rejected it and I vomited the next uh, three or four times I drank and then my tolerance started going up and along with that some of the welcome effects and then uh, so I kept trying to adjust the amount and so I spent 23 more years trying to adjust the amount and the circumstances and I'd add, uh, you know, got, uh, started adding some pills to it. You know, it seemed like when I'd, I started in medical school, uh, you could buy a 10 milligram benzodrine sulfate tablet over at the local drugstore for a nickel. Give him a nickel and he'd hand you one of them little white tablets and scored four ways. And, so I'd take a quarter of those and I could study all night and remember a lot of what I went over and <clears throat> since I diagnosed myself after that as having narcolepsy so I took quite a bit of that and then drank and later years as my tolerance went up for booze I would take the uh, I guess I got where I, did, I didn't drink whiskey and beer I just uh, get me a case of fists of 190 proof Everclear and and then a bushel of grapefruit and put it in the turtle of the car and I would uh, pour some in a glass and a little squeeze grapefruit stir it with my finger toss it down on those bennies and and I'd get the show on the road and but then of course that caused a lot of problems and, but this uh, the process 
what amazes me is the the amount of trouble I had, the jails and the uh, the shame that I felt after some of these altercations that I would have, and uh, how I could could deny or never could. You know, I was introduced to A thirteen years before I finally accepted that, that I. Once I took the first drink, I couldn't consistently control the amount I drank. Under the influence of alcohol, these tragic things kept happening, and it was 13 years after being introduced to AA before I ever took the first step. I haven't had a drink since I took it. Once I accepted the truth, that the truth in my case really did set me free, and I really not wanted to drink. I can remember the welcome effects of alcohol, you know, I remember that <clears throat> tingling of the finger, the little numbness in the lip, and that very relaxed feeling that you'd get for a moment. And then, of course, it was always followed by this restlessness uh, and the need for more. But uh, it amazes me, I can't figure out why I couldn't, after all those things, and a lot of them was pretty bad, that... Uh, completely against uh, the things that I believed in and had been taught. And uh, when I gradually seemed to, to get away more and more <clears throat> from the things I'd been taught growing up. And, uh, you know, I really, of course, my life had become so disordered that the public just quit putting up with it and I lost my license. Uh, then, of course, I guess that, you know, enough pain and I finally, enough, the seed had been planted years ago, but I finally accepted the truth that it was six months then before I started AA. Then after, <clears throat> you know, Dr. Roundtree, who had been, I was, I was sent to him. He had been to one of these IDAA meetings way back, the first one I made was 1969 at Morristown. Dr. Andre had been to one or two before that, but the Texas State Board sent me to him. He was opening, they'd tell me about this place, Starlight, he was opening, and of course I went down and reluctantly and uh, shared with him and a little, I just threw out one of my stories to see how it grabbed him, and and he told one bigger on himself, and, and uh, I weighed Paul and told him another one and he told another one bigger than mine and so we kind of broke the ice that way over a period of time and he gave me a, his autobiography and <clears throat> the Texas State Board had written a little note on the fly page of it said that even though they'd had to take his license away that uh, his uh, life after that after he found God, as they put it, that had been an inspiration to them. Well, he was talking AA to me all the time. I said, I knew that if he, if I could just convince him that I was a good AA man, he'd go to the board with me and I'd get my license back. And, you know, it worked. Uh, I, but I didn't want to go to AA. I had gone down there drinking and taking my pills and they'd say such things to me as, Doc, why don't you come down here sober sometime? You might like it. And, and uh, 
So I really wasn't, I just wasn't ready. And, but after I got my license back, and then ever since then I've been trying to embrace these simple principles. I, I got sober on the first step, and I suppose that maybe the reason I'm still so slow at this new way of life, and I realize from, you know, not so much the way I feel, but from looking at some of you, it's getting pretty late, and I better get on the ball, you know, <laughs> and do something about this, learning this new way of life. I'm 72, and, and I really, though, have begun to, to realize that, that there really is something better than... Uh, than what I've experienced in the past. I'm, I think I really have become, maybe it's circumstances or better, but I, I feel certainly have no difficulty now. I got very depressed about the second and third steps. Uh, how can you make yourself believe something you don't believe? And I don't, I don't have any trouble with that now. I've, ga I've gathered from you people that all I need to do is to start doing the things that's suggested. And uh, as I do these, and I'm still kind of reluctant, but I, I catch myself getting wound up and, and getting really pretty anxious, kind of like the way I felt before I went before the board. Dr. Roundtree told me to pray for the, I've been thinking ill things about the board because I got to counting up how much money it cost me to be without a license. And, and what they, you know, maybe I just tell them what I thought about them, or, or maybe I just glare at them whenever I was in their presence, or maybe just spit on them, or maybe slap them a bit, or hit them on the fist, or poke a knife in the gut, or shoot them, or maybe get a machine gun and mow the whole bunch down. I didn't. Then I realized that anywhere along that line, I was, I was a loser. I could not accomplish what I set out to accomplish. And Dr. Roundsey said, ask God's blessings on the Texas State Board of Medical Examiner. And, uh, you know, I thought I'd done all this sorry stuff. I didn't want to add being a hypocrite to it, so I didn't want to do that. Just before I went before, I realized that I was completely powerless. And I could, they were the only group that I could get my license from. And there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Any kind of a sour look or any negative thing would just, I wouldn't have a license. And I didn't think I could control that the way I looked and acted. So I began to ask God blessings on the Texas State Board of Medical Examiners. And I seemed to feel a little less anxious. So I'd say it. Every time I'd feel anxious, I'd say it and I'd feel better. And so I just kept saying it until I went before them and they asked me how long it had been since I had a drink. And said, I haven't had a drink since January the 18th, 1961. This was on November the 28th, 1961, <coughs> that the meeting was held. And, you know, they asked me a couple of other questions and I answered them simply and directly for the first time. Always before when they'd asked me a question, I would be afraid they would misunderstand. And so just to... I would start explaining what led up to and then forget what the question was and I 
I realized that that wasn't making a very good impression to this sensible group of people, but I couldn't seem to help it. And uh, so, uh, you know, after about the third question, they smiled at me and told me they'd see me and they let me know and I stepped outside and Dr. Crabb then <clears throat> was head of the board and he followed me out. I used to call him that old crabby son of a bitch and he was pretty crabby and he didn't, I guarantee you, they didn't intend for me to ever practice medicine again. Uh, they had used three words when they took my license away canceled, revoked, and suspended. That all means you ain't got no license. But uh, he walked out in the hall behind me and he had a tear on his cheek. And he said uh, that what they'd done in there, they hoped was for my benefit. And that's all he said. And so I thanked him and went on my way and I got my license back. And uh, so I started You'd think that I'd have been, every time I felt upset, I'd been praying for anyone I was upset at ever since. But, you know, I'm still pretty reluctant, you know. Now, Bland taught me a lesson. And, you know, she and I used to not always be as harmonious as we are today. But then uh, uh, I said, God, you look after her. I can't do anything with her. And then, you know, pretty soon while well, he started to improving on my work and I had more time left for myself and so we have a wonderful life together now. I realize there's a lot of people in here that uh, <coughs> got some things I'd like to hear from and I've got a couple of co-chairmen I'm going to turn this thing over to but uh, I certainly have found that along these lines just to, to the extent that I'm willing to surrender and just get up and report the duty and take credit for effort and leave the results up to God as I understand him I get along pretty good and I really am tremendously grateful for the opportunity to uh, to continue to have good health and to to be as productive as I am so far and and to be able to come to these meetings and share with you people this has been a tremendously good good weekend for me so far and I'm sure it'll continue. I would like to just do my part here and I could, Bill's the one that started me. You know, I finally come to uh, Marstown and I was fortunate enough to go to Bill's house and here was Bill and Lois. I had always hoped that sometime before he died, I'd get a chance to meet him. I figured he'd be at the podium, and I might get a chance to shake his hand, get in line, shake his hand, but right there at Bill's home, I, I noticed he's having time to eat, so I just, typical of me, they said, uh, uh, a fellow named Larry Leach said, Gene, I want you to meet Ms. Wilson, and I turned and met this little old lady, and and turned away, and then I saw Bill right in front of me, you know, and I recognized his picture, recognized him from his picture in AA Club. And so I turned around, got all excited, and met Lois again, and then was introduced to Bill. And about that time, they, the buffet started, and I carefully got in behind them, and we, Bill and Lois, and Lee Clara and I, set the table. And 
I told Bill I was referring a, a I mean, street drug addict, street narcotic addicts, AA, uh, at that time was directing the substance abuse program uh, at San Antonio State Hospital. I said, what do you think about it? And very carefully, with a considerate answer, he said, well, he kind of thought they ought to have their own. So I quickly changed the subject to megavitamins. And, and, uh, and uh, of course, I've been sending narcotic addicts to AA ever since. I didn't. But I was very fortunate to uh, have that opportunity. This was in August of 1969 at this August meeting. And, uh, you know, Bill and I have been, you know, been a tremendous friend to me ever since that time. And I would like to call on Bill now. Yeah. Thank you. Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. Gee, I'm sorry to hear you're a hypocrite too, Jimmy. God. <laughs> uh, it's good to be here. Uh, today I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story, and I'm mainly going to interest uh, tell you how AA members have helped me get sober and stay well, and why I keep coming to meetings. Because I keep coming to meetings because I learn something at every meeting, like that you're a hypocrite today. And I, I learn something from everybody that speaks. Uh, I, I get a new idea and help from every meeting that I go to. And I'm still growing. I hope to get better as time goes on. Uh, and I hope to keep going. Uh, I'll briefly tell you my story. Uh, I was born in a good Christian family in North Carolina, <laughs> which most of you were born in, uh, good Christian families. There wasn't any alcohol in my family, uh, and I do not uh, believe that I had anything wrong with my childhood or any predisposing factors in my disease. Uh, I had a perfectly normal childhood. I went to college and did what you're supposed to do, study, and I did athletics. Uh, I went to medical school, and I had my first drink there. And uh, I'll tell you, the drink did something for me. <laughs> it, uh, it sharpened me up, uh, made me more interesting, and I could even dance uh, after I'd had a drink. And I can remember in uh, medical school, standing on a table in the Topley Copley Plaza Hotel in Boston singing Dixie. And I thought that was perfectly normal behavior. <laughs> uh, my ideal in medical school was a professor of surgery, Elliot Cutler. And uh, we used, he used to drink with us. And uh, he told me one night, he said, you know, he called us by our first name. He said, Bill, said, I work too hard. I exercise too hard and I play too hard. And I said to myself, that's for me. <laughs> because this was just one of the sharpest surgeons around. He was a great athlete and a tremendous guy. And I said, well, that's just what I want to do. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, I worked my tail off. I drank very little, except Saturday nights. The funny thing about my drinking, the older you get, you know, the more you look back on that early drinking of yours. And mine was alcoholic from the start. Uh, I never drank one or two. 
and I was generally the first one at the party and the last one to leave. I was also the first one up in the morning and always on time, and I did my work. Uh, I was pretty strong physically. Uh, as I didn't, in, uh, in medical school, learn that this was an addictive drug, and I didn't learn that you could have a good time without drinking. Gradually, I began to relate drinking to good time and that I deserved it. And I thought it was perfectly normal behavior. I did go through two pyramids and was always the top pick, uh, not because I was the smartest, but because I was a compulsive worker. I was there. I did the work. And I did have good hands. Uh, every surgeon admits that, you know. We have our, still have our ego about us. Uh, no matter how many meetings we go to. Uh, by 1960, I was sitting on top of the world in New York. I had written many papers. I was in a radical surgical service at Memorial. I was the number two man there. I was in the OR doing good work, and I thought, gee, nothing could happen to me. I was the heir apparent to be the chief there. Uh, two years later, I was 50 pounds heavier walking up and down 2nd Avenue from bar to bar, uh, having lost my job, uh, having lost my wife, uh, and not giving a damn. <laughs> That's just what happened to me, uh, all because of alcohol. Uh, my wife died, and I had a little Tennessee Williams time there for a year or two. That uh, was pretty tough going for me, having lost my reputation, uh, little or no money, uh, I did meet a girl who, why the hell she married me, I don't know. She didn't realize I was alcoholic. I married Stella. And somehow or other, things turned around then. Stella found out I was alcoholic after she married me, got me to a meeting, and uh, it was through her help that I did get sober. Uh, she went to many meetings with me. I went four or five or six times a week. In the beginning, I always went to the meetings drunk. But as time went on, I began to associate with the winners, and uh, I did get better. I was up at some of the people that helped me. I'll have to mention this, because uh, the more I mention it, the more I remember. Uh, my first uh, tour of recovery was with Mrs. Delaney at Alina Lodge. Uh, this old battle axe and I were at each other's throat from the first day that we met. And we were out at each other's throat just about a month ago. But we still love each other. Uh, and she, uh, she uh, told me, she said, this is a threefold disease. This is a, a spiritual disease, it's a mental disease, and a physical disease. And I thought, well, what the hell does she know about it? You know, she just... And I didn't believe that at that time. Uh, I have later found out that it is a threefold disease, and we have to treat all three things. Her husband there, Tom Delaney, said that there was no one hopeless. Uh, and there was no alcoholic that was hopeless. And at that time, I thought I was hopeless. I did not see any hope for me. And by gosh, uh, he said that. It's, it gave me some hope. Next, my next sponsor was Jack McGarry, who I thought should have been sent away to the Looney House himself, committed. But he helped me a lot. Uh, he, uh, he taught me 
to stop trying to overshoot, to quit trying to be the best in everything I did. He said, do the two-inch high jump. <laughs> he said, that's about all you can do now. I would worry about the income tax, man. I owed a hell of a lot of back taxes. God, every time I'd think about it, I'd drink. And I, he'd say, are they going to take your house away today? Nope. Are they going to stick you in jail today? Nope. Do you have any food in the house? I said, yes. He said, well, what the hell are you worrying about? Uh, he gave me the day at a time thing. Uh, all of these things came very slowly to me, even though I was still doing very radical surgery. I mean, really as radical as anyone around was doing. Pelvic exoneration, ureters, this, arterial transplants, you name it, I was doing it. And I could do it. But I couldn't uh, understand what this was all about. <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't understand what AA was all about then, even though I'd been in a couple of years. We, uh, 1965, I found some other doctors in New Jersey. My wife saw that I wasn't getting so much help in regular AA, so we rounded up a veterinarian, a podiatrist, one other MD, and a dentist. They were the only doctors that we could find in the whole state of New Jersey in 1965. Now we can name well over 400 who recovered in the state and who are not ashamed of it. But we had these five. Well, uh, the meetings then were very good. There were just five of us. And I learned a lot from all of these members. The, the least educated one in the group was a podiatrist. Uh, he was the happiest one in the group. And he exercised all the time. This SOP would go to the Y every day and exercise, and God, he'd come into the meetings happy as hell. So I got back to the exercise routine because of him. Uh, I started exercising every day, and it made a difference. And I've exercised every day since then, and I think it's very important. The other one that helped me in the group was a veterinarian, Doc Mills, who many of you remember. Uh, he was a philosopher. Uh, he taught me that AA was for people who didn't drink. <laughs> I couldn't quite understand that. Uh, he said, it's for people who didn't drink. And after I'd been sober for about three or four months, I told him, I said, well, I've graduated. I don't have to go to any more meetings. He said, hell. He said, you've just got 2%. <laughs> you have to keep coming and learn how to live. Uh, and he said, if you keep coming, you'll either be a teacher or a student. And what you want to be is a student, not a teacher. But he said, you learn from the teachers because they're the ones that are still drinking. <laughs> They'll be your teachers. And, uh, of course, this is what I get out of the meetings now. I, I learn from those that are still drinking and those who are not drinking. Uh, Mil Mills also said that the third step is very simple. I couldn't quite get the God business. He says, all you have to do is live by God's will, or why don't you just try and be a good guy for a change? Uh, so this is very simple. Then we had a dentist in the group, Al Suget, who I haven't seen at this meeting. Uh, I saw him just shortly recently. He's still sober. He uh, 
said, well, when I got in, I couldn't understand the guide bit. He said, my sponsor told me to use a lamp post as a higher power. <laughs> and he said, that's what I did for quite a while. And he says, finally, uh, I, I do have a higher power now, and things are much better for me. Uh, he also said another thing. He said, you'll get a lot better if you drop the word blame from your vocabulary. You remember certain things that people tell you, and uh, I still remember that now. I don't use blame uh, on anything now. I'm not a little Miss Goody Two-Shoes, but I do try to remember some of these things that these good old boys taught me. And in turn, I did help old Al. Uh, I think I saved Al's life. Uh, uh, he was a chain smoker, and uh, he'd been sober 15 years, and I looked him in the eye one day, trying not to laugh, and said, Al, you aren't sober yet. You're still smoking. <laughs> he got so damn mad that he, he just nearly boiled over. He wouldn't speak to me for a while, but he did quit smoking. <laughs> and uh, there he is now. Uh, Jack Forbes was another one that helped me. He said, if you don't believe in prayer, Get on your knees and pray, and it'll help you. Jack finally blew his brains out, but he helped me. He helped a lot of people, and I remember what he said. When things are really tough and you don't know what to do, say a little prayer. Cyril helped me. Cyril died of uh, colon cancer. Cyril was a, just a terrific guy. He said that you need to put yourself in somebody else's shoes always have empathy, which I hadn't had. He said, before you're critical of somebody or find fault with them, see what they're thinking about. Put yourself in their shoes. Cyril, incidentally, right before he died, I went to see him, and he was a tiny fellow, and he was down to about 80 pounds, and he called me over and said, Bill, i got something I want to tell you. Jesus, I went over and I leaned over to Cyril and Cyril said, Bill, I just have one thing I want you to know. I said, what's that, Cyril? He said, you make the damn worst coffee I've ever tasted in my life. <laughs> so, really, when an AA member is near death, they still have a sense of humor. And he died a few weeks later. Carney helped me. Carney uh, helped me a lot about a couple of little things. Carney said, you know, he said, my wife does the craziest damn things, and I don't agree with a lot of the things she does. She wants this black and this chair over here, and she wants to do this, and these are all little things that I don't agree with. But he said, you know what? I've found out that if I go along with her, things are pretty good. He said, it doesn't make any difference, really, about disagreeing over something small or a little small detail. He said, I go along, and that's what I do. Uh, I go along. I don't agree with everything that Stella wants or we, everything that she picks out, but I go along with it because it doesn't make any difference. I don't really care about details anymore. I go along with it. Uh, I remember Bill Wilson back in 69. Uh, in 69, uh, we had Bill Wilson out to Morristown, and I fortunately got to know him. Not too well, but I went up to his office a few times and talked to him. And at that time, 
uh, I was under pretty severe criticism from some older members in this particular group, some of them who are here at this meeting. And they were calling me a promoter. And uh, one of them called me a promoter once. He said, what the hell you mean calling up these doctors? I said, well, if they're drunks, they need help. I call them up. Uh, I said, how many people you got in your group? He said, I haven't got any. I said, well, we got 25. Go home and call some up. Uh, uh, Bill Wilson told me, he said, well, he said, you aren't promoting. He said, anything you can do to help somebody else get sober, you do it. And it doesn't matter. He says, you do it, go out of your way, because this is an illness, and when they're sick, they don't know what the hell they're doing. And he said, get them before they hit the bottom, because the bottom is very often death. Uh, which I believe. I believe it is. And uh, I fault myself too many times. We've had several fellows kill themselves in our group. And most of the times they quit coming to the meetings. And most of the times we forgot to call them. <laughs> most of the times they were alone. And I think sometimes a call could have helped. And uh, I do believe that when somebody stops coming, uh, that they deserve a call. That's all. Uh, as I say, I was riding along pretty good. In 1980, I decided to take the boards again because I was getting older. And uh, I figured that some of the hospitals would want to knock me off the staff if I hadn't done the boards again. So I got busy again uh, going to more committee meetings and getting to be just like the person that I was that came into AA, a compulsive worker who put his work first and his sobriety second. Uh, I did a very big surgery one day, uh, eight, nine hours, and I, I was very upset because I'd had poor health that day, and God, I wondered if I should have even done the case. And I was in New York alone. Uh, my wife, my watchdog was in Morristown, and I walked down the street and walked by a bar that I used to drink in, and there was the same damn bartender that was there that I used to drink with years before. I walked in, he shook my hand, and I had a marvelous five minutes. <laughs> uh, two weeks later, I was making rounds with a pint of vodka in my, in my car. Uh, the day after that, I was on the plane to Gene Seals' place. Uh, Thank God I've married to a girl who cares for me and who didn't uh, willy-walla. She just said, you go. She got the ticket farming, called him up. Uh, I went back and went back to the basics, uh, which is good for you. I learned from Seal that you, uh, you turn this around and make it work for you. Uh, in a way, uh, my slip was very good for me. It woke me up. It let me know that the man that I was will drink again. And I can't be the man that I was. Uh, since then, I've had two other very short slips, uh, which didn't last long, thanks to my wife and Tony and the group. I think that uh, I am a success despite the couple of slips that I've had because I'm sober today. Uh, I look back on them as as helpful things rather than hurtful things. Uh, so I'm a, now I try to keep my 
sobriety, I call it my sobriety index up. Uh, that's a word that, that I coined. Uh, sobriety index to me is dependent on three things. It's dependent on uh, physical health, how well am I, uh, how am I thinking, what's my mental attitude, and how am I spiritually. Uh, those three things. I think that they're dependent on each other. Uh, I do not think you can stay sober by just getting the spiritual side of AA, NAA. I shouldn't be saying this, but I believe it, truly. I think you have to stay well physically, and you have to think clearly. If you aren't thinking clearly, you don't understand that you have a disease. It'll kill you. Uh, you have to understand that this is a disease that'll kill you. Uh, being sober isn't going to help you if you die of lung cancer because you smoke too damn much or of a heart disease. Being sober isn't going to help you if you eat a bad diet and have a high cholesterol and clog all your arteries up. It's not going to help you a damn bit. Uh, so I've been watching my cholesterol lately. I've got it under 200 now, and I think about it because uh, I've just recently retired, moved to Virginia, and there's no need doing all of this. I'm going to go down there and kick the bucket next week. Uh, <laughs> I've worked my tail off the past two years, uh, getting my house ready to sell in Marstown. I've painted every room in it, as Tony knows. I've worked, worked my tail off, and then I worried about selling it, and then I, we worried about planning a new house, which my wife changed the plans of about 20 times. And... Uh, it took us a year to build, and uh, but we're in it now, and uh, this is good. But I can't do anything about it. I can't work in the yard if I'm not well physically. So I think that's an important thing. Uh, I have to keep abreast of the literature on alcoholism. I have to. I've been reading more and more about the genetic side of it, and I fully believe that this is true because my own father was alcoholic although he lived to be 96. Uh, his father died of alcoholism, and my father didn't start drinking until he was 60. But he lost control all the time, and my mother would give him hell. He would lose control, and then finally she cut him down to one drink a day uh, when he was 80 or 85. But uh, he was really alcoholic. <laughs> and... Uh, elder in the church and everything else. But uh, I have two children that are alcoholic out of four and maybe three that are alcoholic. Yeah. And uh, I don't think there's anything that, that I did that caused my alcoholism. I think it was there lying just waiting for me. And it sure got me. <laughs> it sure did. Uh, what the hell else, Seal? You've got such a well-organized meeting here today, Seal. Uh, that's about all I can. That's about all I can say here. It's a, it's a pleasure to see all of you here. And uh, if I helped any one of you, uh, it was worth boring the rest of you. Thank you. <laughs> Addicted to all sedative drugs. I'd like to thank Bill. For saving my life, I finally quit smoking last February, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I was sitting on the John coughing and struggling for breath and smoking at the same time. I said, you got to be some kind of a fool, you know. <laughs> but it's interesting, they brought up that 1969 meeting. I went to my first meeting of the International Doctors and Alcoholics Anonymous in 1963 out in Denver. I got about as far as uh, Kansas City, I think, and I decided I had all those alcoholic doctor specialist out there get me straight if I was to get drunk so I might well have a few drinks on the plane. I ended up out there drunk and Luke Reed and Ross King kind of babysat me and about Sunday morning early they put me on a plane and sent me back home. I was ashamed to go to AA for five years after that. Five years later I was visiting John Mooney down in Statesboro not as a patient and he persuaded me they were going to have the meeting in Atlanta, so I went to it in 68. They said I was a little glassy-eyed. I wasn't drinking any, but I was taking a few pills here and there. <laughs> but I liked it so well that I went to, uh, to that meeting in 1969 that Gene and Bill were talking about. The night before I went to that meeting, I played one of Bill Wilson's tapes at our regular AA meeting. And I fairly well conceived of what he looked like. I figured he'd be a little short, shanty Irishman with a lot of spunk and fight in him. And Bill was a big, tall, thin, emphysematous fella. <laughs> and we were at Bill's house, and we sat around the table and ate. And I'd been reading about alcoholism, so I knew who all the big people were. And at one of the meals that I sat with Bill and Lois, Marty Mann was there. Morris Chavis was there, Ruth Fox was there, and they were all the gods they were in alcoholism at the time. And I was enormously impressed. And Bill was such a nice fellow, in spite of the fact that I revered him kind of like I did God. I, I was, enjoyed talking and listening to him mostly. I didn't talk to him like Gene did. But I mostly listened, and it was it was an inspiration. It was a, it was an opportunity that I felt was something that my higher power saw I needed real bad. I wish I could say that was the end of my drinking and drugging. I had my last drink <coughs> June the second, nineteen sixty-five, and I had my last pill sometime in the later latter part of April, nineteen seventy-three. And so far, I hadn't uh, hadn't had to have a slip. I'm a fifth generation alcoholic that I know of on my father's side, <clears throat> and I had uh, four first cousins on my mother's side who were all alcoholic, and all of them but one died of it, and he's still going to AA. <clears throat> and I didn't, uh, didn't know about my mother's side of alcoholism and my aunt who died just last year. I asked her if, if my grandfather didn't have some alcoholic tendencies, and she said, well, before he was a Methodist preacher, he worked at a factory, and he used to stop by and have a beer on the way home. said one day he caught himself running to the tavern after work, and he decided he better quit, so I believe, I believe that's where we got some of it. I don't have any doubt about the genetic part of alcoholism. I, I have two children, but I was such a horrible example, they don't drink. <clears throat> so I don't know whether they're alcoholic or not. 
But I guess if you'd seen me drunk, you wouldn't have wanted to drink either. I had my first drink when I was 15. By the time I was 19, I was beginning to have blackouts for parts of an evening. Not blackouts as it came later that lasted five or six days. I think they're right around 10 days, five of them consecutively, that I'll never know all the things I did. The only thing that gave me a hint was the credit card things I signed as to where I'd been, and my car had about 2,000 miles on it. But that was the way I drank. I got in trouble more and more with alcohol. During World War II, I think that's when I crossed over the border. We used to get 55 gallons of alcohol for our medical laboratory every month. <coughs> we had uh, 11 officers and 42 enlisted men, and half of them didn't drink. And we had a hard time getting away with all that alcohol. 95% alcohol go a long way. <coughs> we used it for trading and drinking purposes. You could buy anything with alcohol over <laughs> in the South Pacific. But money was no good at all because it just turned green. There wasn't any place to spend it. With alcohol, you could buy anything you wanted. And it's over there I lost my vomiting reflex. <coughs> You drink that alcohol right fast, and you pass by the vomiting center so fast, you won't even know it's there. And as far as I know, it's still over there. <laughs> After that, when I got too much to drink, the only way I knew it was the people told me the next day. When I uh, got through medical school, we did a lot of drinking in medical school, but everybody got drunk and nobody paid any attention. If everybody's drunk, you don't outstand. But when I went up to Mayo Clinic to take my residency, and and I got drunk, I was outstanding. So when it came time to ask people to stay there, uh, they didn't ask me to stay. <clears throat> and I decided that uh, sometimes I could go and I could have a few drinks and I could be a nice person. And other times I'd go and I'd have a few drinks and if you had a shag rug, I'd puke on it. <clears throat> if you had a plate glass door, a window, or a coffee table, I'd go through it. And if you had a good-looking wife, I'd try to get her, too. And other times, I'd just be perfectly charming. So when I, <laughs> so when I left uh, up there, I decided I didn't want a doctor working on me that was drunk, and I didn't want to work on anybody when I was drunk, and it wasn't necessary to drink, so I just wouldn't drink. So I went home, and I didn't drink for three months, and that was the only way I had of handling anxiety and fear and worry. And I don't know how secure you people felt when you first started to practice. But I was very insecure. I'd always had somebody looking over my shoulder telling me what to do. And here people were asking me what to do. I was a great consultant from the Mayo Clinic. And that scared the hell out of me. So one spring, my wife and I went out to a camp my dad had on the lake, and we locked the door and built a big fire and split a pint of whiskey, and we just had a great time. I didn't want more to drink. And I said, well, you're grown up now, and, you, and your life's work, and you can drink. And from that time on, I was either painfully drunk or painfully sober. I continued to have more and more trouble, and uh, in 1959, my wife uh, told me to leave, and I was ready to go. In 1959, I was uh, 39 and finally free of a wife and children and all those responsibilities. 
But when that divorce came into effect, I felt that I had committed an unpardonable sin. I was brought up to believe, believe that when you got married, you married for life, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And if you didn't do that, you had goofed. <clears throat> Having uh, committed an unpardonable sin, I decided I was going to hell. And I wasn't going to go to hell for any little sins, the pragmatist that I was. <clears throat> so I set out to have a good time and do as many big sins as I could get away with. I made a deal with God at that time. I said, God, don't you throw any bottles in my yard, and I won't throw any Bibles in yours. And I denied the existence of God. Having done that, the only sin was getting caught. So I had me three girlfriends, all the whiskey I could drink. I made more money than I ever did when I wasn't drinking. <coughs> did real well. Got into medical politics. Got to be the president of the Alabama Heart Association. I was up for the uh, Board of Sense of the State Medical Association. <clears throat> That's the governing body of the state of Alabama. That's five years in practice. And I learned one valuable thing. If you want to be the leader in any organization, you go to all the meetings. All the meetings were out of town. It was a good place for me to drink, so I went to all the meetings, and I went, moved up very rapidly. <clears throat> I was up for the Board of Census, and I went down to Mobile to the meeting. And being free, white, and 39, never having been to a house of ill repute, I decided I should go to one. <clears throat> and I took off to go to one. I got out there, and I decided they charged too much money, and I wanted to go back to my hotel. So I got in my cab and went back to the hotel, and I thought somebody from there was following me. They going to beat me up for not trading with them. And I started to search for a cop. <clears throat> and I looked and I looked, and all I felt I could find was a man in a blue uniform was pushing a broom. And I began to knock on the door to try to get his attention. He wouldn't pay any attention, and I knocked harder and harder. Finally, they wasn't, he wasn't paying any attention. There was a big brass band on the bottom of the door, so I used a sturdy door, so I turned around and I kicked it a couple of times. And I had lots of cops. I kicked in the front door of the First National Bank of Mobile. <laughs> Half the medical society came down to get me out of jail. And they thought it was funny as hell. <clears throat> but they never did ask me to empty the ashtrays again after that, I'll tell you. Until <laughs> they needed a disabled doctor's program, I got in on that several years later. With the Heart Association, I went to a meeting in St. Louis, and me and one of my girlfriends were having some drinks in the in the bar, and the bar was off the lobby. When they closed the bar, they just turned around and closed the doors like this, and, and there it was. I ended up face up in the lobby with my name tag, Harry Simpson, Alabama Heart Association, up there. <laughs> Dr. Fromeyer went to Switzerland the next week to a World Health Organization meeting. He had Wally Froby, Alabama Heart Association on there. He says, oh, yeah, we had one of your people <laughs> at our hotel last week, and I became an international drunk. <laughs> each, each time that uh, one of these things happened, it meant the people in my clinic group got the word almost before I did. And they'd hold a meeting to kick me out, and the pressure built. And I decided I better do something. I'll join AA. So I went to AA. 
And in AA, uh, they immediately saw they had a leader with them, so they put me on the steering committee the first week I was there. <laughs> I was so proud of that that I had to have a few drinks to steady myself before I secured the thing. I used to go to the meetings drunk. Went in my bathing suit one time. We had some old chairs we borrowed from the funeral home, and I used to flop down those things, and they'd fall all to pieces. The thing that got the most, though, I used to go home after the meeting with my tape recorder. I would tape a critique of the meeting. And of the AA program, I got the 12 steps down to three. Thank God I can't remember and the next meeting, I'd put my tape recorder up on the rostrum, and I'd, uh, I'd play these words of wisdom that I had dictated while under the influence of the pint of vodka. It got so bad that they met an hour after each meeting, trying to find a way to throw me out. Up till then, the only requirement for membership was an honest desire to stop drinking. They could, my higher power could see I wasn't going to make that, so it just became a desire to stop drinking. And they prayed about it. And as they uh, prayed about it, uh, a woman came, A, who was already in trouble for blackmailing a doctor in another town close by. And I knew the judge who was in AA, and I was going to get her out of all that trouble. One night I invented, invited her and her husband and her mother over to my house to have a drink. After the meeting, have some coffee. After the meeting time, they got there. I'd passed out, <clears throat> and I came to in the middle of the night, and there she was. Her husband was a TV repair man. He was a big husky guy. Could run up and down the stairs with two color TVs, one in each hand. I said, "He's gonna kill me, and if he's gonna kill me, we might just well have some fun." So we set out to have fun. When it came time to go to work, she called each member of my clinic group separately and said, Don't worry about old Harry, he's drunk, he ain't going to come to work today. <laughs> she didn't just call the switchboard, she called them all personally. I had a friend that was a Lincoln Mercury dealer, and he had a red Lincoln Continental convertible. He used to let me drive every once in a while, she and I went and got that thing. And we rode up and down the two main streets in my little town waving whiskey bottles and hollering at everybody. And uh, I took her home and her husband didn't bother me. But the next morning the clinic took a second step for me. They hired me off to Highland Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. And at Highland we went through all that psychotherapy and stuff. And after a month I finagled a pass, went up to Minneapolis and got drunk. And they told me they couldn't help me, that I ought to go to AA. And I said, hell, I tried AA. It ain't no good. <clears throat> they said, well, that's all there is. You better go get it. And I went back to AA, and I tried. I never was on a prolonged drunk from then on. Up till that time, for the two years before I went there, I was on a schedule to start in the morning with a uh, two grain and a half, 100 milligram nimby tails. 50 milligrams of Librium, take a little nap and eat breakfast and go to the office. And uh, by noon, I'd be shaking so bad, my office girl would have to write my prescriptions. I finally got a signature on there. At noon, I'd go home and I'd either drink a half pint of vodka or take two more Nimbutel. 
Five o'clock one afternoon, I got a speeding ticket going to the bootlegger, and I drank a pint of whiskey for supper and a pint of whiskey after supper and more sleeping pills at bedtime. Either pills or vodka at uh, 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock. <clears throat> I went that way for two years. But after that little trip up there, I never was on a prolonged drunk. I'd get on a little drunk, take pills enough so I'd get back to work in a hurry, because if I stayed home and worked long, I was dead. <clears throat> and finally, in 1965, I got to court and the lady had five children and a husband. And we got caught and the family scattered to the far winds. And I had to drink again and I drank and uh, I got so disgusted with myself, I wanted to die. I thought I, I was going to die an alcoholic drug addict and didn't care if I did. I used to tell God, if you're going to kill me, hurry up. Don't just torture me. But I got to a, a place and got off of that booze. And I ran into a clinical psychologist who told me that if I'd come see him once a, a week for a, a matter of three months, I had an 85 cent chance of being sober. I didn't believe that at all. But I didn't think I had any chance anyway. I might as well try it. And I tried it, and that relationship went to two and a half years. I think that helped me as much as anything I ever had. I continued to go to AA. I continued to take pills. But finally, in 1973, I went to, down to Puerto Rico to play golf. My baggage didn't come, and my pills didn't come, and I suddenly realized I was in jail of my own making. If my pills didn't get there in a matter of uh, six or eight hours, I was going in severe withdrawal, probably convulsions, and uh, that I was going to be that way anywhere I was. If I broke my leg and went in the hospital and didn't have my pills with me, I was in the same mess. I'd have to tell the doctors, listen, doctor, I'm a junkie. i got to have my pills or I'm going to have fits and die. If I had a heart attack, be the same way. And I was in love with a a woman I'd met in AA and wanted to get married, didn't want her in that kind of a deal, so I went over to John Mooney's and, and worked the AA program the way it's supposed to be. I had talked to a lot of psychiatrists, as far as I was concerned, that was my fifth step. <clears throat> I never tried to write it out, but I decided I was going to do exactly what they said because that was the last chance I had. I didn't figure I had any more chances after that. And I wrote out a fourth step and, a, and took a fifth step with old John. And I found out who I was and what I was, and on the basis of my past performance, what I might reasonably expect of myself. And I accepted myself for what I was. And for the first time in my life, I was comfortable. And I got off of those pills, and I hadn't had to have any more since. <coughs> One time before I did that, I went to try to get off the pills. I went to an insane asylum in Birmingham. They didn't have rehabilitation places when I was trying to get dry. You either went to the funny farm or got yourself locked up in jail. Some of my friends said they'd rather be locked up in jail than anywhere they could think. But I used to go there and take about a week to get off everything. and. Uh, then sit around with those menopausal old women for about another week to shake until you quit shaking, and then you go back to work. 
And I told the doctor I didn't want to do that, and I was awful nervous when I finally got off those things. I said, I want to go down to Florida and check this thing out in one cold, rainy day. He said, go on, you're not doing any good anyway. If you, if you live, call me when you get back. And I took off to Florida, and I was so nervous. I had the yips. Most people drive like this, but I was kind of driving like this. We yip this far, I was in the ditch this far, and I had a head-on collision. I drove about 40 miles an hour down to Perry, Georgia, and stopped. Spent to spend the night is getting dark. I walked up and down that damn interstate for an hour, hoping somebody'd run over me, and they wouldn't. Got back to the motel, and I was too nervous to sit down. I was too tired to stand up. I couldn't lie down. Finally, I thought about my AA group at home. I said, you know, there's a lot of people in there that don't have any of the education I've got. And they're making this program, and they're happy, and they're comfortable. And I don't know how anybody could be any more miserable than I am. I said, what is it they've got that I haven't got? And the thing that they had that I didn't have was a relationship with a higher power. I had divorced God along with my wife. And I remember hearing about Bill Wilson when he had his experience. Sometimes called a hot flash. He felt that beggars couldn't be choosers, and he said he might just as well pray. So I got out and asked God, I said, I don't know what to do. If you want me to go back to that funny farm and finish shaking this out, you tell me. If you want me to go to Florida and shake it out in the sun, you tell me that. Just tell me what to do. That's the first honest prayer I'd ever said since laying me down to sleep. In a little while, I was able to sit down. A little while longer, I was able to lie down. A little while later, I was able to sleep, and I slept six hours. <clears throat> if any of you all were addicts, alcoholics like I was, two hours is about as much as I could ever get at any one sitting. And when I came to, I didn't have the shakes anymore. And where it had been cold and rainy, the sun was shining and the birds were singing, that was a message to me that I thought that, uh, <clears throat> that God had told me to go on down to Florida and shake it out. And that was the beginning of a, a return toward a spiritual life that I had completely stepped away from. The next Easter, I went up to uh, Asheville, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, where my daughter was in college, and went to Easter services with her. And the preacher was talking to me. I think everybody talks to somebody in an audience. And he told told the people that, uh, you know, on that first uh, Easter Sunday, when Mary and the disciples went down and found that the stone had been rolled away and the body of Christ was gone, they were afraid, and some of them ran and hid. He said, those people who lived with Christ all that time had that little faith that's amazing we have any, and I was amazed that I had any, and I got a little more because I thought I was the only one that felt that way. He said, God doesn't always come up and grab you from the front. Sometimes he sneaks up from behind and grabs you. And I think he got me started that day and through a series of little miracles. I began to believe in a God. In 1977, I had a myocardial infarction. And my wife, who'd been sober for four years, and they started back to drink. And we had a kind of a hard time, off and on. And I learned what unconditional love is. 
I got to the point where I either had to divorce her or decide to love her no matter what she did. And thank God I finally decided to love her no matter what she did. As far as I'm concerned, unconditional love is a decision one makes. It's not a feeling you get around people. It's something that you decide yourself. And until then, I had never understood unconditional love. In 1984, in December, I had pneumonia and congestive heart failure. And when I got out, my wife went in with a little stroke. And she and I went to Florida to recuperate from that. And I got back, and my office girl was sick. And they told me I was going to have to talk to her about her drinking. She'd been with me 29 years. She died of acute hepatic insufficiency secondary to alcoholism. In April, she died. In August, my wife died. I sold a house I'd lived in for 50 years. And I retired and moved to Florida. <clears throat> I never felt as lost in my life. I had two and a half friends in Florida. Two friends and a real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to AA every night, and those people in AA, just like in the first part, those people loved me and cared for me and took care of me, just like Ken folks. And I've got more good friends in Florida than I have at home now. When I was growing up, I never felt that I belonged. I felt there was I was different from everybody else. I was a doctor's son. As such, the school teachers treated me different. I was the only one in my town that ever graduated from high school with a 70 average. If I hadn't had a cousin on the school board, I'd have never made that. <laughs> but it set me apart in a certain way that I, I never quite felt. Even in the Army, I, I didn't feel that, that I quite belonged. All of my friends were officers, and I was an enlisted man. And I always wanted to belong to something. And in the eight years between the time I quit drinking and the time I quit pilling, I kept going to AA. But I never felt that I belonged till I finally quit taking the pills, and I had joined AA. When I was up at Bill Daniels in 69, I was taking pills, but I wasn't drinking. But I was learning a little something. But since I have quit taking any mind-changing drugs and since I have begun to work this AA program the way it's supposed to be, in spite of all my difficulties, my life has been just great. And I'm very grateful for it. We've got one man here that got sober a long time, about the time I should have gotten sober. I'd like to hear a little bit from Philip back there. Thank you. and I'm an alcoholic. I came here because I had some good news that, uh, that I thought ought to spread around. I'm retired from about everything you can be. I, I'm a Wall Street banker and a lawyer and a drunk. And uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be 73 years old, which isn't old in this room. And uh, I live in Seneca Falls, New York, which is a small community up in the Finger Lakes. 
and uh, I've only lived up there about eight years and I'm up there with with my wife Anne who really belongs to y'all <laughs> but the thing I wanted to tell you was that I go to a lot of meetings and in that community better than half my friends are under 30 years old and you know it isn't like us old fellas sitting around listening to our arteries harden uh, I got I got 12-step work I got speaking to do occasionally I'll have to get a meeting going uh, I talk at a hospital and I have a, a, a dichotomy in my thinking because when I came to AA and there was somebody there 40 years old talking about how he quit drinking I'd look at him and I'd say if I was as old as that old buck I'd quit too but I find that there's a wonderful thing and I heard it from a man who's been on everything you can get drunk on everything and he said when he first heard me speak at a meeting he said what can that old so-and-so tell me and then he said he went home and he thought about it a little bit and he said and ladies forgive me because this is what he said he said that son of a bitch has been sober longer than I've been alive if I get into this thing it'll work and I just thought you know that we have a function we can we can stand up in front of these young people that are still coming in and still making all those old tired mistakes <laughs> and we can say hey if you do it like I we did it you can live too and there's lots of them that don't think they're going to make 30 thank you Gene had to leave and he talked over me and Bill to shut her down uh, then the other old times that want to get up here and say something I'm not sure who the old timers are Bill you know more of them more than I do they're all old times alright let's call this man here he's shuffling around like he wants to get up there I'm an alcoholic from Iowa I've been playing around the program since the 1950s but really didn't uh get into the program about 1972 been there I've been continuously sober since that time I didn't have a very good sobriety until I got a call from a gentleman named Bill about 1974-75 and found out there were other doctors I don't even know how I got my name and I went to George, I went to his Morristown New Jersey meeting and liked everything about it except I'm sure the bed I had there George Washington slept in it because that was the only bad thing about the meeting and since that time I've had a pretty good sobriety I live, a, live in a small town in Iowa and uh, I don't it's not too popular in that state to uh, be a physician and be a surgeon and be known as a alcoholic but I've made a pretty good life out of it I did finally get through a formal treatment program in the early 70s but uh, most of my sobriety has been achieved through local AA local farmers local meat cutters 
that kind of AA people. They've helped me. The program's given me my life, given me sobriety. My drinking started back early when I was a young pharmacist mate in World War II. And uh, I did a lot of drinking in Baltimore. I received a fleet appointment at the U.S. Naval Academy in 1944 and attended that institution. And I've never seen Baltimore sober. I'd sneak, I'd, uh, I, I haven't been here since 1946, but I used to sneak out of the formations when we go to the football games and go to the, some hotel here and get drunk and then get back with the brigade of midshipmen. I don't know how I ever got on those ships or I ever got back to Annapolis. I don't even know how I got, I, I stayed in Annapolis. But I think the Lord's been always been with me because I've kept my sobriety. Uh, I, I kept my life, not my sobriety. And, uh, so this is a, I started going to IDAA in about 1974, and I found out there were other doctors in the program. I wrote Luke and uh, found out that the, where the meetings would be. This has been a great meeting for me, uh, still sober today. I found out and I'm a lone survivor of my World War II company. And being in my middle 60s, I think that the fact that I've never smoked and the fact that I found this organization that's given me my life. I still ride bucking horses and I still do some surgery and I still practice medicine 70, 80 hours a week. And uh, without this, without this organization, I think, I, I must say that most of my sobriety though, I have to give to my local AA chapter because those are the people who kept me sober, but finding out that there were other doctors that had this disease uh, made me a much happier individual. And I see people here I've been seeing for years and I want to thank them all for what they've done for me and contributed to my sobriety. Thank you. This is my first meeting, attend this group. Um, Probably a lot of you will wonder what these two things mean. But that was a little error in the, when they recorded me when I came in. I think my drinking goes back to um, World War II when I was in the Pacific. And um, at that time, we were, Virginia was very available to all of us, and uh, we did our share of drinking. Uh, coming home from the service, I, I um, did my share of drinking, but mostly. Uh, cocktails at night and uh, attended practice. I was very active in, 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 in practice. And um, <clears throat> as of January of this year, I retired. And uh, at this point, uh, um, I go to meetings. I attend three meetings a week. And I go to a professional group, uh, which is in the, on nearby town. And um, I must say, I got a lot out of the program. I, intend to follow it as much as I can. I'm very grateful to you. I'm Mason. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm an alcoholic. I came out of the Army in World War II with the diagnosis of chronic alcoholism. I was a physician at that time. I spent a year after I got out of the service trying to prove that the psychiatrist was wrong. As you all know, I couldn't do that. I finally came into AA in 1946. 
I would like to be able to stand here and tell you I'd been sober all that time. With the exception of about 21 days I have. My story, I think, is a benefit to people who have a tendency to get complacent, bored, whatever you want to, with going to meetings after meetings after meetings. I had periods of 10 years I drank, 10 years I drank, 8 years I drank, and I have a little over 10 years this time. I hope I don't drink again. Every time that I drank, I had stopped going to AA, I had stopped helping others, I had lost all contact with the alcoholic, I had lost all contact with God. I had nothing that I could survive on. So as you can see, AA has certainly saved my life. I'm very appreciative that it has the door that swings both ways. We're not going to twist anyone's arm that wants to go out and drink again. But by the same token, that door will open just as easily for them to come back in. And in my group in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I make this plea quite frequently, and we're in a real good meeting here, the seniors. Please, when you find old Joe, who is a senior member of your group, he hasn't been around for a while, go see about Joe. It used to be the saying that, well, now Joe knows where it is, and he wants to come back, he'll come back. Lots of times Joe never made it back. He took that drink, and he died out there. So please, any, particularly, of we fellas that have been in AA for any period of time, if you find any of them lagging, go see how they're doing. Put out the hand again. It saved my life, and I know it'll save others. I'm just very glad to be here. I went for years thinking, and yet I knew better, but thinking that perhaps I was the only drunk doctor in Oklahoma. And I found that that sure wasn't true. That sure wasn't true. I've had the privilege of the last uh, two years being the associate director of our impaired physicians committee. We've had, I would say, a little better than fair success with this. And every bit of that success comes from the AA program. Again, I'm glad to be here. I'm enjoying Baltimore. Thank you. Dan, I'm an alcoholic. I'm one of the results of Bill's methods. Uh, I began corresponding with Luke many years ago, and I corresponded with him for two or three years. He kept inviting me to meetings, but I kept saying I couldn't go. 
because uh, the IDIA meeting coincided with my son's birthday, and I couldn't leave him alone on his birthday. He was over 20 at the time, and in addition to that, he's a drug addict and was stoned most of the time. He didn't know if I was there or not. But finally, Luke wrote, and Luke, even though he might have sometimes criticized <laughs> Bill's methods, understood, because he wrote and said, I don't seem to be getting anywhere with you. Can I give your name to a man who has more forceful methods? <laughs> so the next thing I knew, Bill began calling me up. And he sicked all his friends on me, and all of them began calling me up from New Jersey. I was living on Long Island at the time. This was around Christmas. Well, I said to Bill, nobody can get sober around Christmas time or the holidays. I'll get sober after New Year's, and then by April I'll be sober enough to come to the Morristown meeting, because I thought you had to be sober to go to an AA meeting. He said you might be dead by April. Well, I said, I can't go to the local meetings because somebody might see me. And he said, I never knew anyone lost their job from being seen sober in public. <laughs> now, this was quite a while ago. This was over 13 years ago. And I remember each of his quotes, which I'm sure he told a lot of other people, hopefully sometimes with similar results. And I did get to the Morristown meeting where I met a lot of you. And I've been going to meetings ever since enjoying them. Most of the time, after I'd been sober seven years, I retired from pediatrics and took up treating drunks in a detox unit. Moved upstate. It's very similar, you know. You can't, you can't get a history from the patient. You have to ask the family, just like in pediatrics, and also they'd cry a lot. <laughs> I keep coming home and telling Phil about my old ladies I have on my detox unit, and he laughs at me because most of them are younger than I am but I can tell them how I was 54 when I got sober. They all think they're too old to get sober. Nobody's too old to get sober or too dumb. I learned a lot from John Mooney, too. He used to say, it doesn't take much brains to stay sober, just all you have. <laughs> and he also told me, don't think you can stay sober working in the field and that you don't need meetings because if anything, working in the field will drive you to drink. And that's certainly true. I need a lot of meetings. Sometimes I'm sick and tired of alcoholics and never want to see another one after a hard day's work with people in denial. But uh, then you go to a meeting, you see people who aren't in denial and really want to get better. <laughs> so that cheers me up. And I'm very glad to be here and see you all, especially Bill. Thanks, Bill.